Well, good morning. Glad you guys are here today to worship with us. If you have your Bibles, join me if you would in the book of Galatians. It's the book we're walking through. We're going to start in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 11 today. If you have a bulletin, there's an outline in there, and we're going to try and take a big swing at it, but we're not going to make it all the way to the end of chapter 1 today. We're going to actually make it about halfway through, and then we'll finish up next week with that. As Paul starts out in this passage that we're going to look at today, and he returns to something that he talks about a lot. This is really foundational for Paul. It's kind of bedrock stuff. And so he repeats it a bunch. It's the fact that this message that he taught the Galatians, really even more than that, the very fact that he was able to teach the Galatians at all is due to the fact that Paul met the resurrected Jesus Christ. And so Paul doesn't ever stray very far away from that incredible reality. And so after Paul touches on that, to back that claim up, he shares this testimony in verses 13 to 24. And since our testimony should be such an important tool that we can use to share the gospel message, I really want to stop and kind of focus here a little bit. And the way Paul presents it is really easy to see what he's doing in this format because first he covers his former way of life. He says, here's who I was before I met Jesus Christ. And we're going to make it through verse 14 and look at that portion today. And then he turns to the most important part in verse 15. He says, here's how I met Jesus Christ. And then he spends a good bit of time talking about the difference, the change in his life that you see. And with Paul, that was really, really easy to see because before, he was a violent persecutor of the church, and he ends up as a guy who's sharing the gospel and planning churches. So it's easy to see a real big difference in Paul's life there. I'm real blessed, and I get to help folks prepare their testimony sometimes, and I love talking about that middle step, and I normally call it the but-then-Jesus moment. I was this way, but then Jesus, and now I'm this way. And so the details surrounding how God drew us to himself, that's a great part of our story. That's that's the thing between Paul being a bad guy and writing like half the New Testament. I was this way, but then Jesus, and now this way. So we're going to walk through that with Paul and the Galatians over the next two weeks. But to start out, let's do a little bit of a quick review since we took a week off for Disciple Now, which was a wild and great party. I hope you guys got to be part of that. It's a great, great time. But a couple weeks ago, Paul covered really clearly, here's what the gospel is, and here's what the gospel isn't. And the thing that he wants the Galatians to know is that anything that's not the gospel, anything that does not offer grace, well, that's not going to result in eternal salvation. So we talked about two areas, two big areas where that kind of plays out. And one is that idea where we say, wow, the authentic gospel, that's just too easy. There's no way I could just receive grace. I better add something to that. I'll make it just a little bit harder, and then I'll be okay. And Paul says, no, you can't do that because then that's not the gospel. And then the other side was that idea we say, oh, man, that grace, that sounds great. That's really good. Because of grace, now I can do whatever I want, and God will forgive me because of Jesus. And Paul says, no, no, that's not the gospel either. And I had a a good example of this. I don't know if it was a good example. I had a memorable example example of this just last week. It was really vivid, where God showed me the difference between something that is and something that isn't, and then the consequences that go along with it. It was actually on the night of the Disciple Now concert. My wife had another meeting with Apples of Gold, and so I brought a bunch of kids up here to the concert, and then I ran home, and I wanted to do a bunch of stuff to try and help her out, so I unloaded the dishwasher, and I started a load of laundry, and I got Trace in the shower, and I was back in my room hanging up some clothes, and all of a sudden I hear my daughter Macy yell. I mean, she screams. Trace, what'd you do? And that'll bring any dad running. (laughs) So I ran out to the living room, and the reason she was yelling is because there was a flood in my house. 
It was literally a flood. And, and because Trace was taking a shower, Macy thought like he hadn't put the shower curtain in the tub, which we've done many times before. And, but no, this was something different. This was something big. And so I'm running around the house, and like I run downstairs, and there's water pouring out of the light fixtures and the smoke detectors in my house. And so then I run upstairs, and there's water cascading down the hall towards Macy's room. And i got to figure out what is going on here. And so I finally found the source. And somehow, I don't know how, the drain hose had worked its way off the back of my washer. And so all the water that had been in my washer was now all over the house. And so we just have a little laundry closet, and I had to jump my incredibly agile, nimble self behind this washer and, to, <laughs> and try to attach this hose to this spewing geyser of water. And it had just one of those little tension clamps. Have you seen those? Where you pinch the clamp, and then you can slide the hose back on and let it go. It's supposed to be tight. So I did that. I reattached the hose. Then I took every towel we had in the house and cleaned up all the water I could see. Went downstairs, took all the drop ceiling out of Gavin's room. It was like just a little spontaneous remodeling project at my house. It was fun. And so when I got all that done and I'd done the damage control, I went back upstairs and what? I started the washer again because I thought I had that problem fixed, right? No, no. <laughs> I didn't actually have that one fixed. But, but here's the deal. It didn't create as big a problem the second time because I was sitting there watching it. I was just daring it to pop off again, and it did. And so I hopped back there again, and I had my feet up in the air, and I'm trying to, it was an adventure there at my house. It was a good time. I didn't wash any more clothes that night. I wanted you to know that. But, but the next morning, I got a hose clamp. I got back there. I fixed it, and I, and I think I got that problem fixed. But as I was doing it, I was praying, and God, I think, really taught me something. And here's the deal on this. The hose was either attached to the back of my washer, or it wasn't. There was no real middle ground there. Even that second time when it looked like I actually had it attached, it, it didn't stay attached. I had a bad clamp or something. And so the process was wrong. It looked good, but it didn't give me the kind of results that I wanted. Well, this is what Paul is saying to the Galatians. Hey, I don't care if what you're hearing sounds good. I don't care if it looks good. I don't care if you think it works for a little while. Here's the deal. It's either the gospel or it's not. The hose was either secure on the back of my washer, sparing me from a flood, or it wasn't. And I was in trouble. And that's the point that Paul's trying to make. If we vary from the gospel at all, then it's no longer the gospel. And that's going to cause trouble. And we need to keep that fresh in our mind because Paul keeps returning to this over and over. Just like his claim that he saw the resurrected Jesus. This comes up over and over again because the true gospel is such a big deal for Paul. So let's jump into our text today. We'll start in Galatians chapter 1, verses 11 to 12. Here's what Paul writes. For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me is not according to a man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it, how? Through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now Paul addresses this to the brethren, a word that means believers. And I'd say this would be at least to those who are claiming to be believers in Christ. As we already said a couple weeks ago, if they're willing to make a trade, or they're going to trade the true gospel for a false gospel, then they never really accepted the true gospel. And sadly, we know people like this. There, there are people who profess faith, but they don't have genuine faith. And Paul starts out with his message. He says, I didn't, I didn't get this gospel of grace. I didn't get this incredible good news that I'm sharing with you from a guy over on the street corner. This didn't come from man. And we'll start to see this a lot in this letter. So many of the things that Paul writes, they're really answers. They're answers to questions or accusations that had to be coming his way. And on this one, I think for sure, people must have been saying, hey, Paul, you made this up. There's no way this message is authoritative. 
you made up seeing Jesus, and then you made up this grace thing. So if you made it up, well, then how is it different from any other movement or religion that we've heard about? And this is one of the areas that's really valuable if you go in and correlate with the rest of God's Word because we'll see that Christianity is really, really different from any other man-made religion. In any man-made religion you'd follow, what you end up doing is working backwards. It's called reverse engineering. There's some kind of goal. There's something you want to achieve out here, whatever the prize is, you know, whether it's nirvana or happiness or great standing with a higher power, whatever it is, and you know where that is. And so then the idea is, okay, what do I have to do along the way to be able to achieve that thing, that goal? I have a goal right now to lose some weight. I'm pretty sure dieting is a man-made religion. My buddy Scott Roth and I, he's working with me on this. We're challenging each other to get healthier. And so I have this goal before I have my knee replacement surgery in a few years. I want to weigh as much as I did when I got married, which is a long time ago. And so to achieve that goal, there's some stuff I'm going to have to do along the way. Actually, some stuff I'm going to have to not do. I'm not going to have to eat as much, for sure. But that's the deal. I see that out in the future. That's where I want to be. Well, that's how we see man-made religion. It's people working or guessing or speculating along the way so we can get what we want, so we can achieve some kind of goal. Well, at its core, Christianity is 100% different from that. We need to really understand that. Christianity is never about what we do to please God. It's always about what God has done for us in sending His Son Jesus so we can experience grace, we can respond in faith. God does that. We don't do that. And in the Bible, Christianity never hides the fact that it's the truth. Now sometimes, let's be honest, that's a hard message to preach lovingly. If you're talking to somebody and they've bought into some kind of man-made religion or some kind of movement, some kind of ism, they're just absolutely sure there's no absolute truth. It's a fun argument. <laughs> if you get the time, you can go, okay, if you do that, it invalidates your argument. But, but somehow they bought into this thing. And it's tricky because they may be really passionate about it. And they may be a really nice person. I mean, that, that person might be nicer than some Christ followers you know. And they're so zealous for this wrong thing that they're chasing. What do you do? You approach somebody who's made that trade, they'll say, well, how can you be so sure? Because I sincerely believe in this thing. Look real quickly at John chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. We'll have these up on the screen. In context here, Jesus is talking about how his disciples are going to relate to the fallen world around him. And here's what he says. Be a time where they will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he's offering service to God. And these things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. Those verses really explain what's going on in Saul's life before he becomes Paul. He was so zealous for keeping the law that he'd break the law because he thought that was going to be the thing that would please God. Those are the things he had to do to achieve his goal. Hear me on this. People can be sincere about their beliefs and be sincerely wrong. And if they are, then the most loving thing that we can do as Christ followers is tell them the truth. And Christianity never hides the fact that it's the truth. It's not made up. And so you'll talk to people who are atheists or agnostics or they follow a man-made religion, and they'll get really upset over a verse like John 14, 6, where Jesus boldly says this, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's so exclusive. Oh, you're so close-minded. How can you think that you have it right? You're the only one who has it right? 
How do you answer something like that? Answering it really requires a lot of prayer and a lot of preparation. But I can answer it and I can say, because I have faith. Because I live a radically changed life. Because I believe in the authority of the Bible written by guys with radically changed lives like Paul. Written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And never once in the Bible do the authors try to apologize or try to work around the truth. The truth of a verse like John 14, 6 is it's probably the most inclusive verse in the whole Bible. I mean, Jesus didn't say it to thumb his nose at people. Man, nah, 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 there's only one way and you can't get it. Huh? No. no, Jesus isn't saying that at all. I'm confident it's the opposite of that. Think of it this way. What if you're going to have a party? You're going to throw a really big party and you truly wanted people to show up. You really wanted everybody to be there. Wouldn't you make really, really clear the communication for how to get to your house? Wouldn't you make sure they knew without a doubt how to get there? You don't want them to not show up to the party because they took a wrong turn. Couldn't find it on Google Maps. You, you want to make sure they know how to get there. That's what Jesus is saying. There's only one way to receive eternal life with the God who created you and loves you, and it's through faith in me. I want you to know that. So that's an inclusive verse. Paul reiterates in verse 12, I didn't get the gospel from man. I got it from Jesus. And what he's saying to this church, these churches in Galatia, is, hey, I taught you the gospel, but I didn't get it that way. It wasn't taught to me like that. Now, I'm going to step out and make an assumption, and that's always a little dangerous, but I'm going to assume for sure that Paul had at least heard the gospel before. There's a little context that will back me up. If you read Acts chapter 7, in that account, that's where one of the first deacons, Stephen, is martyred. And I guarantee Stephen had been preaching the gospel. I just guarantee it. You read that account in chapter 7, he's before the council, and Stephen basically summarizes the entire Bible that had occurred up to that point in time. And at the end, he calls these council members stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart. And those were fighting words for those guys. And so they drive Stephen out of town, and they stone him to death. And at the end of that chapter, it says everyone who was there to witness this gruesome act, they laid their robes at Saul's feet. So Paul was there. Paul had heard the truth before, but he hadn't responded then. Because that's not how Paul received the gospel. He goes back to it over and over again. He didn't get it until his but-then-Jesus moment on the Damascus Road. And that was so impactful. If we can just imagine how impactful it would be to meet the resurrected Jesus Christ. It was so, so big for Paul, he never strays very far away from this subject matter. Paul says, I received my conversion I received my commission. I received this message that I'm preaching. Everything I got from Jesus on the Damascus Road. We, but we got to get used to that because it comes up over and over again as we read Paul. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, Paul writes, For indeed Jews ask for signs, and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach what? Christ crucified. Now to the Jews, that's a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, it's foolishness. So Paul knows he's going to encounter some opposition, and some confusion when he preaches about Christ. But that's all he preaches about. What about 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2? For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now Paul's not saying, hey, I didn't want to know anything about the people. We know that. He'd go and he'd plant these churches and he'd fall in love with the people. He really cared for the people. What he's saying is, I don't really need to know anything about any man-made religion. So what does Paul talk about? Jesus his crucifixion, which led to his resurrection, which set free grace. That's Paul's message over and over again. 
Paul were alive today, he'd be a big shot. He'd be like, you know, John Piper, Matt Chandler, Tony Evans, a guy like that. You'd want Paul to come speak at your conference. Can you imagine how that'd go if I called Paul up? Hey, Paul, James Green, Cape Bible Chapel here. Yeah, I know you've never heard of me. Hey, listen, I was wondering if you'd want to come and speak at one of our manly men meals. You'd come and talk about, you know, like guys in the church and, and maybe talk about being a godly husband or a father. What do you think? You, you want to come do that? And Paul would say, no. <laughs> but I'll come and I'll speak about Christ crucified. Ooh, okay. Well, that's great. That's a great message, Paul. Maybe in there you could sneak in something about how we struggle with sin, like maybe especially pornography. That's a big deal. Could you talk about that? Paul would say, nope. I'm going to come and I'm going to preach about Christ's death and burial and resurrection. I could try something different. Hey, Paul, why don't you come speak at one of our missions conferences? You know, talk about how you traveled all over the Gentile regions and you're planting churches. You'd come talk about that. Paul would say, nope. I'd love to come, but here's what I'm going to talk about. God sending Jesus and the work that he accomplished on the cross in setting free grace. Because if I talk about that, all the other stuff you're worried about, we're going to cover it. It's going to be covered if we don't get far away from the foundation. See, the answer is always Jesus. We said that a couple weeks ago. Whatever question you have, the answer is always Jesus, unless it's a squirrel. It was from a couple weeks ago. If you missed it, go back and listen to that one on the website. If we start at the foundation like Paul does, we will never be able to get too far away from the answer. And so we'll learn how to be an effective missionary, or we'll learn how to be a godly husband or a father, or whatever it is that Jesus is trying to help us apply in our lives, we'll learn that. We don't stray away from the foundation. So Paul says to the Galatians, I'm not making this up. It's Jesus. So go back to the text in verse 13 and 14, and here's where Paul's going to back up his claim about the gospel message, where he heard it. And I think he does it with what is the most solid piece of evidence there is for the reality of God, and it's our testimony. It's our story of how our lives are changed after our but-then-Jesus moment. Now, let's be honest. We're fallen people. We live in a fallen world. And so if we go out and we share the good news about Jesus Christ, there are going to be people who will want to argue with us about it. I've had the opportunity to do this. If you have, you know, a lot of times the argument is the same kind of stuff. People will attack the Bible. Why do you believe the Bible? That's just a bunch of made-up stories. If they know a little bit, they'll say, well, you know those Gospels you believe? They weren't written down until 30 or 80 years after Jesus died. It's clearly made up. Folks got together afterward, and they tried to make the story sound the same, but they didn't even do a good job of that. And then they'll go back. And the Bible is just full of contradictions and on and on with that kind of argument. Now, if you're able to have a dialogue with somebody like that, it really is incredible. You've got to pray. You've got to be patient. And if you do, then you could show them. You literally could show them. There's tons of research on this. that the Bible is the most historically accurate ancient manuscript that we have. There's been tons of research by historical heavyweights that will validate that. You could talk with them about the reason that the gospel messages, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the reason they weren't written down originally is because that's not how stuff was communicated in that culture. The gospel writers lived in a culture where people didn't write stuff down. They shared it by oral tradition. That's how they would have passed on the stories. When we read the gospels, it, it interprets itself. Whenever Jesus would show up at a new place and he was going to teach or he was going to heal people, there'd be crowds of people who would show up too. How do you think they knew to get there? The disciples send out a newsletter we didn't hear about? 
Did Peter pick up and tweet, hey, Jesus is on the road, and he'll be in Emmaus on Thursday with a two-day stop in Bethlehem, and then he's going to show up in Bethany next week. It's only 117 characters. He could have done that. No, the word was spread through oral tradition. And in that culture, when it was really, really expensive to write, and most people couldn't read or write anyway, they wouldn't have written those stories down until they were nearing the end of their lives. Word spread through oral tradition. And you could ask these people as you're dialoguing with them, hey, can you show me where the contradictions are in Scripture? Because there are some. I'm not going to lie. There's some that really make you ponder. But I think those contradictions in Scripture actually point to the fact that it's true. If somebody wanted to make it up and they colluded together, they wouldn't have any contradictions in there. It would all read real smooth. We read those contradictions and we see God used different authors at different times. But they say, oh, there's contradictions. And so they just throw it out. The Bible must be unreliable. But if you're in this arena and you're engaging with folks and they're attacking the Bible, if you start to dialogue with them, they may switch their argument. They may switch to evolution or scientific arguments. And listen to me on this. I think it's really wise to be as prepared as we can in those areas. Paul spends so much time and effort setting up his defense before the Galatians. We need to do that too. We need to be able to do that in our lives. Take a look at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. Here Peter writes, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. When you do it, do it with gentleness and reverence. I don't know if you're big on memory verses, but that's a good one right there. That would be a good one to stick away so you can have it anytime you want. If someone asks you, why do you believe in God? It's very, very good to be able to articulate why you believe what you believe. And to do it with love, to do it with gentleness and reverence so you actually draw people to Jesus, not push them away. Someone asks you, why do you believe? And you say, because I do. Because my parents did. Because I heard Dan or James say it. You know, those are not good enough reasons. We need to know why we believe what we believe. It's really, really important. If only for this one really simple reason, we tend to act according to what we believe. For reasons unexplainable in this time we have, I'm a Cleveland Browns football fan. Somebody would come to me and say, hey, what do you think the Browns are going to do next year? And I say, I think they're going to win the Super Bowl. And they would say to me, hey, you want to put some money on that? I'd say, of course not. (laughs) Number one, because I don't bet. But number two, I don't believe the Browns are going to win the Super Bowl. I just want them to. But I'm not going to go out and act on that. I'm not going to run out and buy Super Bowl tickets for next year because I'm just sure the Browns are going to be there. No. We act according to what we believe. So we need to have a good defense. Every one of us need to be able to articulate and explain what we believe. And here's the deal about establishing that defense. We can do it. There's a neat study, an area of theology called apologetics. And that's what it means, defense of the faith. We should be familiar with these things. There's a neat chapel small group, meets on Sunday nights. That's what they study, apologetics. My small group on Wednesday night this semester, we're doing an apologetic study. We want to be ready to give a defense when somebody asks us that incredible question. But here's the reality. Here's the bottom line. We're not going to be able to prove our faith. In apologetics, what we're basically trying to prove is the tomb was empty. Trying to prove Jesus was resurrected. Good luck proving that. But I believe it. And the idea is we're not supposed to be able to prove it because if we could prove it, it would nullify what? Our faith. We wouldn't need faith if we could prove it. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1 puts it this way. 
Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. We very likely won't see Jesus again until he returns at the rapture for his church. And I'm okay with that. I'm not trying to prove the tomb was empty because we can believe without having proof. That's how we're saved. It's by grace through faith in Jesus. Jesus puts it this way to doubting Thomas in John chapter 20, verse 29. Thomas is one of those guys, well, I'm going to have to see Jesus and put my finger in that nail hole before I'm going to believe. And he says that, and Jesus shows up and lets him do it. Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. And here's what Jesus says, because you've seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And it's great because Jesus goes on to write, We don't have to put our fingers in the nail holes to believe because we have God's Word written to us in the Bible. Verse 31 of John 20 says this, But these have been written, he's talking about the Scriptures, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. Remember, the Scriptures point to Jesus. He is the answer. And that believing you may have life in His name. And so if you think, well, there's no way I could do all that research. There's no way I could build my defense. I don't know what the cosmological argument is and the teleological argument. And I don't know how to explain that God created everything out of nothing. My thing is, do the best you can in that arena. Be at least familiar with what that is. But if you're a Christ follower here today, know this. You don't need it because you're holding the trump card in your hand because you have your testimony. People can argue with you all day long, and they will, about that other stuff. But how are they going to argue with the story of you They think they know it better than you do. It's your story. comes in those three parts we're talking about. We're going to look at the first part of Paul's in the text today. We'll come back and pick up those last two parts next week, the best parts. Your testimony has these three parts. They're identified on your outline. There's that part before you met Jesus. There's the most important part, when you met Jesus. And then there's the radically changed part. What does your life look like since you met Jesus? Sharing your testimony is just that easy. It's just sharing those three parts. As I've said, I'm blessed. I get to hear a lot of testimonies. And and I promise you, they're all good. But I've noticed one kind of overwhelming trend for people who have a testimony like mine or a testimony like Paul's where there's a lot of baggage. If you have a lot of former life to share. God didn't draw me to himself until I was 26. And if I'm honest here in front of you today, I was a dirt bag up until then. I'd done so many bad things and, and just wrong things and stupid things. And when I was doing Young Life, I used to share my testimony a lot, and I'd wind up talking a lot about those things. But the older I got, the more I shared it, I was convicted to not focus on those things so much. And it's not because I was trying to hide the dumb stuff that I'd done. I'd tell people if they'd ask. But it's just that I was sharing my testimony, and I know a lot of kids were saying, well, see, James had all that fun, and he did all that stupid stuff, and then he accepted Christ later. So I'll just do that. I'll wait, and then I'll accept Christ later. And so I started to make sure when I shared my story that folks knew all that stuff I talked about before I met Jesus, that wasn't fun. I think at the time, I probably thought I was having fun, but then even right at the end, I knew it wasn't fun. I was just empty. I was out looking for something to fill me up. I just kept looking in the wrong places. There's absolutely no guarantee that we can wait until tomorrow to accept Christ. We're not promised tomorrow. So I began to make sure that my testimony focused much more on the but-then-Jesus part and the radically changed part, those things that God had done 
instead of the goofy stuff that I did beforehand. Now, Paul has an incredible testimony. And we'll see it here in Galatians in these three parts. And we'll just look at the first part today. So let me show you one that shows all three parts a little briefer. Three parts of our story with Jesus. And it's in John chapter 9. And we won't have time to walk through the whole thing. But, but in it, there's a blind man there. And Jesus heals him. He does this really weird thing where Jesus spits on the ground and he makes some mud with some dirt and he slathers it on the guy's eyes. And he says, hey, go wash it off and you'll come back, you'll be able to see. And the blind guy does it, and I'm sure he forgives Jesus for spitting on him after he can see. This miracle happens. But anyway, in the town, people knew this blind guy. He'd been blind since birth, and so they'd see him, oh, there's the blind guy. Well, now all of a sudden they look at him and they've got to do a double take. Hey, weren't you the blind guy? And he says, yeah, I was, but then Jesus. And so the Pharisees are there, and Pharisees were this party or this movement in Judaism that Saul wanted to really advance in. Saul wanted to be like the top Pharisee. And the Pharisees were famous. They were known for their exact observation of the Jewish law. So the Pharisees catch wind of this miraculous healing, and they get upset because, uh-oh, turns out Jesus performed this miracle on the Sabbath. According to the Jewish law, you can't do that. Those guys carried around the law in the back pocket of their robes, and they said, hey, you can't do this. Clearly, they wanted Jesus to wait and heal the guy on the next day. No, they didn't want him healed at all. They just wanted to trip up Jesus. So they start asking questions, and they bring in this guy who was formerly blind, and they grill him a little bit, and then they bring in his parents, and they grill them a little bit, and they don't like the answers they're getting. So they bring the guy who can now see in a second time, and they ask him this. They say, hey, quit pulling our chain. This guy, Jesus, he's a sinner, right? In verse 25 of chapter 9, this guy gives the shortest greatest testimony ever is he answers whether he's a sinner talking about jesus i do not know one thing i do know one thing i can be certain of because my life is different my life is radically changed he says that though i was blind now i see there's the three parts of our testimony i was blind but then jesus now i see for every one of us here today who's a Christ follower, do we recognize that as our story? I was blind. Then I met Jesus. Now I see. This is the testimony we're going to see from Paul. He was blind. He was so blind, in fact, he was so zealous for something that was so sincerely wrong that he persecuted Christ followers. Here's what Paul tells us in verse 13, Galatians 1. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure. I tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Paul says, I persecuted the church of God beyond measure. That phrase could be translated violently. Paul violently persecuted the church, and he tried to destroy it. Paul's not saying, well, sometimes I'd lose my temper and Every now and again, I wrote an anonymous letter, mailed it in about stuff I didn't like. Paul didn't say horrible things about the church on Facebook. He's saying, I was a violent man. I wanted to destroy the church. That's an important verse. You've got to stop there for a second and say, do we realize what that verse does? Do we understand what that verse takes away from us? Because after we read that verse, there's nothing left for us to say in our lives, well, I am so bad that Jesus can't love me. I've got this bad thing, and so there's no way that Jesus can love me. I've been too bad. 
I cheated on my taxes. I cheated on my spouse. I abandoned my kids. Hey, I don't care even if you say I killed somebody. Because Paul's saying, hey, me too. Now, I don't know if Paul really killed people or he just supervised the killing of people. I don't know if there's a big difference. It's not a good thing. Whatever we have, whatever that stuff that we've been holding on to and we're keeping it between us and Jesus, the ridiculousness of the gospel means that we can live lives like Paul. When we talk about that stuff, we can talk about it the way he did. We can refer to it as, hey, that's my former manner of life. We need to understand that's what the gospel of grace means to us. The gospel that Paul is sharing with the Galatians, not a man-made gospel. It's the story of God loving us so much that he sent his son. And Jesus died in our place. He paid the debt. He established a kingdom that will go on forever. We can have eternity with him. That's the offer that's on the table. If we just receive the gift of grace from God, we can all have former lives. Paul goes on to say, not only was I a bad guy, I was a violent guy, but my belief system was all out of whack. Paul wasn't just a guy who struggled with his temper. It's that the motivation for the violence and the hostility toward the church was his man-made religion that he was so zealous for. Paul was a mean guy, and he wanted to win his age class and be the overall winner in, in the top Pharisee contest. Paul was on the fast track to becoming the most highly regarded Pharisee around. And so next week we're going to see this. After Paul picks up a former way of life, that comes back to bite him. But look in the text. What does Paul say he's zealous for? It's his ancestral traditions. Well, that's just another way of saying the law of Moses. And here's where this verse would be funny if it didn't involve the fact that people literally died because of this. But Paul is saying, I was so zealous for the law that I broke the law. I violated the Ten Commandments. Sixth Commandment is pretty clear on the murder, you know, do, do not kill. If you read the Old Testament, killing and warfare was acceptable. That's covered in 1 Kings. Capital punishment was allowed. That's in Leviticus. You killed somebody in self-defense, you're okay. The book of Exodus deals with that. But come on, Saul. Killing somebody because you don't like what they believe? Pretty sure that's breaking the Sixth Commandment. But Paul was just so sure that was how he was going to show his devotion to the law. Read in Acts chapter 26, verses 9 through 11 this week. In that context, Paul's making his case before King Agrippa, and he details some of the horrible things he did. But here he's sharing his testimony, and he calls that what? It's my former manner of life. That's who I was. If you're here today, and you think, man, my life is a train wreck. All the words that people use to describe me are nasty adjectives, then that's the offer that's on the table because of grace. All those things can become your former way of life. We just place our faith in Jesus. We just accept the grace that Jesus set free on the cross. And I know this for a fact. I can know this because I have a former way of life. I was a people pleaser. And so I put on this huge mask to try and hide all this ugly junk in my life. But people who knew me well knew it. I knew me. I had a violent temper. I had anger issues. I drank too much. I was addicted to pornography. I was a chronic liar. I was a dirtbag. But then Jesus. I probably say this too much, but one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, they're all good. shouldn't have favorites. One of the ones I love and return to often is in Romans chapter 7. After Paul 
chronicles his struggle. And it's really the struggle all of us have with our own sin nature. He says this in verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? In case you're wondering, that's not my favorite part. It's the beginning of the next verse. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, that's the offer that's on the table because of grace. So if you showed up today saying, oh, wretched person that I am, who will set me free? Then you could leave here today with a former way of life just by accepting God's grace, by beginning a relationship with Him, by placing your faith in Jesus. If you're here today and you're burdened to do that, it's because God puts you here to hear that. Please answer that call. I'm going to close our service today by taking communion, which is a wonderful blessing for all of us for sure. If we're Christ followers, we get to be obedient to Scripture. We get to dig deep, examine our hearts, confess our sins, be right with Him. And we remember, as we take the elements, what Christ did for us, for our sake on the cross, what He's accomplished. But in this time, if you're familiar, Ryan's going to come and he's going to play some music. If you're here and you're wrestling with that stuff that you've been carrying and holding between you and Jesus, now's the time where you can just put that down. And you don't ever have to pick it up again. All that stuff can be part of your former life. It can happen for you today. So if you're new here at the chapel, the communion elements are on the tables all around the room. Ryan's going to come play some music. You'll have some time to respond. And so take communion when you're ready. This is the Lord's Supper. It's not our supper. Spend time with Him. And I'm going to pray here in a couple seconds for the bread and the cup. And we'll get to close our service by worshiping and song together. And then Dan's going to come back and have just a couple of announcements. But let me pray. Daddy, thank you for what you've done in sending your son. I thank you for my testimony, for Paul's testimony, the testimony of every Christ follower in this room who can say, I used to be this way. But then, Jesus, now we can live lives that have a former way of life we can talk about. God, as we observe communion, as we take the bread and the cup and think about what Jesus has done on the cross for us, setting free grace, God, help us to be convicted of the way you desire for us to live our lives that would bring you all the glory that you're so worthy of. God, thank you for this local church where we get to come and worship together and learn and grow. God, help us to not leave it here. Help us to live lives every day that show that we belong to you. Help us to share your gospel message with love, with gentleness, with grace. God, we just give this day to you. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen.